Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 5. The first four verses we saw last time are the verses that constitute the first warning section of the book. And then you come into verse number 5 of the the continuation of the subject that preceded chapter 2 and verse 1. So let's read from verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now verse 10 really is a continuation, but it's a linked verse into the next section and we'll deal with a little bit of the verse I think this evening, but not all of it. So we come to this section and we are back to the subject of angels briefly. And we've been seeing in our studies that Christ is superior to angels. You remember the the general context of this book written to Christians with a Jewish background primarily, Certainly a good knowledge of the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the offerings, the the whole system. And they were going back to the things that they had left behind. Some of them would be Christians, some of them not Christians. And they are going back to the things that appealed to them, really due to the persecution they were experiencing. You get that later on in the book. And so there was this persecution... And the pressure was on, and they're going back. And we saw that there was plenty to appeal to the senses in what they left behind. There was the things that would appeal to sight, the things that appealed to the whole idea of the the sensory aspect of the Old Testament worship, the temple, the garments, the priesthood, the incense, the sacrifices, all of that. And when they came away from that to Christ, they left all of that behind. And they come to Christ, and the purpose of the writer to Hebrews is to display and to demonstrate that in Christ, they have far more than what they left behind in Judaism. It's the basic tenet of the book. So the superiority of Christ is presented in so many ways. His superiority to the great men of the Old Testament, to Moses and to Adam and to Joshua, his superiority to angels, to the sacrifices, to the covenant, all of these things. And we've been looking at this idea of angels. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this was important to the, the readers of this book because angels were very important in the Old Testament context. They were connected to the giving of the law. And they were part and parcel of Old Testament scripture. And so the, the Lord Jesus has been proved in chapter 1 and now finally again in chapter 2 to be superior to angels. And we were saying that that has a very modern um, application because 
when you look at the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you discover this, that much of this teaching from Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 contradicts what is taught by the Jehovah's Witness in relation to the deity of the Lord Jesus and his unique character and his distinction from being angelic and not just being the greatest of all the angels. So it does have a modern application. Let's look now at verse number 5. Because I I pointed out last time that verses 1 through to 4 is one of the warning sections. So there's a flow of thought which is interrupted from time to time by these warning sections. Now, I suppose that's a good pattern for anyone that teaches or anyone wants to convey information. And certainly in in the scriptures, this happens quite a lot. But you get information, you get doctrine, if you want to put it that way, teaching. And then there'll be a break. And there will be an application of that teaching. And the practical impact of that teaching is stressed. And then he goes back to teach more. So it's not just the whole book and then a little bit of practical application at the end. It's punctuated by these challenge sections. Now he comes to verse 5. Now in verse number 5 he's picking up the idea and the statement. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse number 4, you have this key statement. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There's your key statement. And the rest of chapter 1 is an expansion of that, a justification of that, if you like. So there's the the statement. He has obtained a better name. He is greater than the angels. Well, where's the evidence for that? The evidence flows from chapter 1, verse 5, down through the chapter. You get Old Testament quotations and so forth, seven Old Testament quotations. Now you have the warning section in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, and then he picks up the theme again in chapter 2, verse 5, and says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. So the rest of chapter 2, from verse 5 down, is built around this truth and flows out of this truth that's stated in verse 5. So here's the critical verse in verse 5 for the rest of the chapter. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So this is the last point in relation to angels. It goes back to chapter 1, verse 4. He's greater than angels. He's obtained a greater name, and so forth. And then the argument flows down through the chapter. You get the challenge section, and then verse 5 picks it up again. Here's his final point. In verse 5, he makes the final point and then he establishes, he proves it and he also deals with some of the issues that comes out of that for the rest of the chapter. That's the flow of thought through these two chapters. Now, he speaks about something here in verse 5 that's interesting. He speaks about the world to come. Now, that expression, the world to come, if you get your Bible dictionary out or your Bible help out, whatever you use, you discover this, that it's not the general term cosmos for world, which really refers to a world system. And it is not so much the word aeon, which means ages in relation to chronology, but it has to do with the inhabited earth. 
So when it speaks about the world to come, he's not speaking about ages of time that are yet to unfold. He's not speaking about world in terms of ages. And he's not really speaking about the, the world order, the cosmos. He's speaking about the inhabited earth. There is a world that is going and there is a world that is coming. That's his point. And the world in which we live is a world that is going because there is a world to come. An inhabited earth that will be different from this one. You see, in the original creation, God created man in his image to subdue the earth and to rule over it. That's the world in which we are. You get that back in the book of Genesis chapter 1. So God, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And here it is, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's God's original creative purpose for man. He creates the earth. He populates the earth. He gives man dominion over the earth so that the earth and the inhabitants of the earth is subject to man. Subject to man's authority, God's vice regent. Subject to man's dominion. He has rule over the earth. It's God's first creative purpose for mankind. Now, what then happened in this world in which we live? Not the world to come, but this one. Well, man lost that dominion through sin, through rebellion. Was estranged from God and put away from the presence of God. He lost his authority. He lost his dominion over this world as it had been. So that, in fact, Satan is now described in strange terms in the Bible. He, in John 12, John 14, and John 16, is described and elsewhere as the prince of this world. And John will say that the whole world now lies in the lap of the wicked one. So where is man's dominion? Where is man's authority? <coughs> you see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam lost that for mankind. And that authority and that dominion was lost and the whole creation now groans. The whole creation is dysfunctional. Man does not have the dominion over the inhabitants of the earth that he once had. He can't even control himself, never mind control others. So the world in which we live is different from the world to come. Because the world to come will be in subjection to another man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to establish here. But it will not be in subjection to angels. That's his base point. So in that future day, he's proving again, and will prove down through this section, that this world to come, this world that we anticipate, this future, when, when, when this earth will go, and, and when this earth will be different, and it will be inhabited, yes, and it will be ruled by a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, not by an angel. <coughs> Satan's rule here is limited. Satan's rule here is going to finish. So his point is this, unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. There's his big point. 
Christ is greater than the angels. Don't lose sight of the big point in this. This is from which the rest of the chapter has to be connected to this basic point. So when you get this point, what does he mean by not put in subjection? Now that's a military term and it's used in arranging soldiers and so forth. It speaks of a system administration of an economy and he's speaking about the administration, the rule of a future inhabited earth and angels will not have that earth in subjection to them. So Christ is not an angel and Christ is greater than angels because this world to come will be subject to him, not to angels. Now it's interesting, he also says in verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. We speak. What's he talking about? You see, this whole letter is speaking about things which ultimately will come to pass. He's going to introduce the, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ's sacrifice, the finality of Christ's sacrifice. He's already mentioned this expression, great salvation. And he's going to show that there is a future and there's a glory and all the rest of that. And so he says, we're already speaking about these things because the things ahead are better than the things that they've left behind. It's better on before. That's a kind of trite expression. But it's actually true. It's not really trite. It will be better on before. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word hope is so important and it's not a speculative hope, it's a certain hope. And we look forward to a better future. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Look forward, don't look back. Go ahead, don't go back to what you've left behind. Don't slip back. Now he's now going to give an Old Testament quotation that's going to establish the fact that the world to come will actually be, be put in subjection to a man. Man will have dominion. God's original redemptive, God's original creative purpose will be fulfilled. Cannot be thwarted by sin. Now look at verse number 6. So he's going to quote from Psalm 8, and he uses a kind of strange expression, you might say, to begin the quotation. He says, but one in a certain place testified. One in a certain, it sounds a bit vague. It's not that he didn't know. Um, it's just that he doesn't often, when he quotes the Old Testament, quote the writer. He's attributing, really, the Old Testament quotations to God. And he's emphasising the inspired character of them. So he just kind of passes over David, who wrote that psalm very lightly. And he's emphasising the fact that this has the authority of God about it. The human author's almost incidental in that sense, and he says this, there's an Old Testament quote, is what he's really saying, Psalm 8 as we know it, that says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now that's a, that's a kind of commonly quoted psalm, Psalm 8. But what does it mean? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Let's break it down. What is Man. Now, the word for man there in the Greek is the idea, or it's the same idea, we're going to come to it in Job, but it's the idea of mankind, mankind in general. So he's speaking generally, 
David, when he wrote this, he's already gazed up into the heavens. He's looked at the stars. He's looked at how amazing God is when he sees God's creation. And then he looks down and he says, what is man? He's not thinking about a specific man. He's thinking about mankind. What is man? As he looks around. He's really saying how weak and how feeble are we when you look at the vastness of God's creation? How insignificant are we? When you look at the, the majesty of all that space and all that the stars show us. Job wrote this in chapter 7, verses 17 to 18. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him? That's what he said. That thou dost examine him every morning and try him every moment. David's staring up into the heavens in Psalm 8. And when faced with the vastness of space, the smallness of man just dawns on him. What is man? He's asking. And he says this, What is man that thou art mindful of him? That means to remember. And that thou visitest him. The expression son of man is just again speaking about man generically. It's not used as a title of the Lord Jesus in this context here. So it's what is man and what is the son of man? Speaking general terms, this psalm. And he's really asking the question, why does God remember us? What is it about us that causes God to even have a thought about us? Why would God ever move? And that word visit has the idea of help. It is the idea to look upon in order to help or to benefit or to have a care for. Why does God care for us? Has that ever come in, has that ever sort of just dawned on you or me when we've, when we've seen something that, that kind of just demonstrates the vastness of God and the relative insignificance of mankind? David looks around him and says, I can't, there's no explanation to this. Why does God care for us? Why does he not just ignore us? Why does he not just destroy us? Well, he goes on beyond that and says in verse number 7, as he, in the psalm, makes three statements about the care of God for man. So he says, why are we remembered and why does God care for us? You say, well, how does God care for us? And what are we actually special to God? Well, look at verse 7, three things. Number one, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Number two, thou crownest him with glory and honour. Number three, and has set him over the works of thy hands. Now, some of your translations may not have that last expression, the ESV, I don't think has it. Um, it seems to be a disputed expression. I don't know enough about these things, but I know this, that if it's not at the end of verse 7, the same thought is at the beginning of verse 8, that has put all things in subjection under his feet. It's the same basic idea. And so there are three things here. Three things that God has done for mankind. Number one, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now this expression on its own can be a bit ambiguous, it can either mean 
by a small degree or for a short time. So the merest him a little, now that could be a little in terms of degree, a wee bit we might say, or for a wee while. So it can be ambiguous in both of these and the context will determine which expression you would prefer. I would think that the idea of time suits the whole flow of thought here in the passage. Can't be dogmatic in that, but that's what I would feel. So for mankind, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now there's coming a day, because that's actually what verse 5 tells us, there's coming a day when that will not be true of mankind. But it is true at the moment. No question about it. You see, angels are heavenly creatures. They are spirit creatures. We are earthbound completely. We die. Angels don't die. And we don't have the power that angels have either. And that is true. We are lower than angels. But that is also not always going to be true. It's time limited for this inferiority. This chain of command is temporary, someone has said. God is a destiny for man that will elevate him above angels. But that's the first thing. Made him a little lower than the angels. Secondly, crowned him with glory and honour. That's the Stephanus crown. The honorary wreath which served as a crown of the victor in the Greek games. Jameson says this, as the appointed kingly vice-regent of God over this earth. When Adam was made, he was crowned with glory and honour here upon earth. In all the dignity of perfect manhood, unsullied by sin. In all the innocence of the Garden of Eden, man was crowned with glory and with honour. There was dignity, there was authority that Adam was given. Glorious, dignified. And then thirdly, thou didst set them over the works of thy hands. Now that's the idea that's expanded in verse number 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. So thou hast put all things in subjection. He's the head of the human race. He was the lord of the earth. He was the lord of the animal kingdom. The whole thing. All put under him. Crowned with glory and honour yet lower than the angels. Let's just summarise that. What has God done for man? In creation, in the original earth. Well, for a limited time, man is lower than the angels in the creative order. He was glorious, he was dignified in his position within that creative order. He was given authority and rule over all that the Lord had created on earth. But verse number 8 says this, at the end of the verse. Here's the contrast. But now we see not, yet all things put under him. He says, hold on a minute. If that was true at the beginning, it's certainly not true now. He says, there's been a change. He says, you look around. And as I mentioned, then the animal kingdom is not subject to man as it was. Man's authority over the animal kingdom is enforced by man. 
the whole, the elements, the weather patterns, the earth itself, the, the, the way that the earth yields its fruit is also different. It's been changed by sin, Genesis chapter 3. This earth bears a curse now. And man feels the effect of that. And so the psalmist says, listen, that was all true, but we look around and it's different now. But now, very, very different. One writer said this, he is no longer master of himself, never mind anything else. He's become a fallen creature with a depraved nature. He's now a slave to sin. The animal kingdom was subservient to him, but not now through affection, only fear. The ground, instead of yielding only good things, now produced also thorns and weeds and other harmful things, extremes of heat and cold, poisonous reptiles, earthquakes, typhoons, hurricanes, all conspire to make his life a constant battle to survive. Man struggles to survive here upon earth. And that's not a display of dominion and authority. Where is his glory and honour? Lost to sin. And you go out into the streets tonight and you see men and women behaving in immoral ways and so forth. Where is the dignity? Where is the honour? Where is the glory of manhood? When you see others destroyed by abuse of alcohol and drugs and all this, where is the glory? Where is the honour? Where is the dignity? Where is the dominion? You see, the writer says this, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Neither we do. What a state the world is in. But there is hope. These two words, not yet. These are words of hope. This present situation that man finds himself in is temporary. God has done something about this. This is the gospel. This is the great salvation that's been spoken about already. For God's purpose for man will be fulfilled. But at the moment, we're well short of it. No question about it. So in verse number nine, we're introduced again to a contrast. And we have this contrast in verse eight, we see not. In verse nine, but we see. So when we look around ourselves, man has made a right mess of things. So turn your attention away from that, and now you turn your attention and look at something else. But now we see. So we see not yet, but now we see. So the gaze of the audience is turned from the loss of dominion, the loss of authority, the loss of dignity, the loss of honour, Okay, let's turn from that and let's look, turn, turn and look at Jesus. Here's the contrast. But now we see Jesus. You see, up until now, the writer has been focusing on mankind in general as descended from Adam. But now he turns to one man. That's why he uses the name Jesus to emphasise the manhood of the Lord Jesus. This is the present reality that the writer wants us to focus on, not the disaster all around us. You remember these, these people who were receiving this, they, they were being persecuted, life was tough, life was difficult, they were suffering in this broken world, they were suffering the, the hostility of others and, and they, are, they are inclined to go back. Say, don't go back. But we see Jesus 
And you'll see this again and again in this looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And so as the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. This is the message of Hebrews. Let's look at the perfect man. Let's look at God's solution to the mess all around us. Let's take up, let him take up our attention. What a difference it would make for all of us. But we see Jesus. One writer said this, when the reader of the English translation comes to this name here, at once there comes into his mind the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of Paul, the saviour of sinners. And that is good. But to the Jewish reader of the Greek text of this letter, the action would have been different. He would say to himself that the name Jesus in the Greek text is just a transliteration of the Hebrew name of the God of Israel that points to his distinctive nature as the one who saves. Jesus, the God who saves. Jehovah saves. And the idea of deity would come to his mind. But as he reads on, he would see the incarnation in the words who was for a little time made lower than the angels. And that would lead him to the person who in the Gospels was spoken of as Jesus of Nazareth. You see, up to this point, the writer has never mentioned the name of Jesus in the book. The writer up to this point has just spoken about the Son. The Son is superior to angels. Now he suddenly says that the Son is the Joshua, if you like, Jehovah of the Old Testament, and he's the Jesus of Nazareth of the New. And he links them all together. But we see Jesus. This is the man to whom they had come. This is the man that they were to trust. This is the man who was their saviour, Jesus. There is, if you read commentaries on this, you'll find that there's, there's different views as to how to interpret the, the, the flow of this. This is how I, I look at it very simply. If you look at these words, we're now taught, seeing the psalm applied to the Lord Jesus. But we see Jesus. Now, just break down verse 9. If you look at the verse, you'll see uh, two words, I think, that are key to understanding this verse. I'll just emphasize the words as I read the verse. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The key words are for and that. So in the flow of the language, there are two statements and there are two reasons behind the statements. He was made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Do you see that flow in the verse as it stands? Well, let's try and, and pick this apart briefly. You remember that Adam was made a little lower than the angels. Man was made a little lower than the angels. That's Psalm 8. That's what David said. And this is Jesus. And he too was made a little lower than the angels. It's another way of speaking about the incarnation. It's a way of speaking about the manhood of the Lord Jesus. 
And just as God made man lower than the angels, so Jesus was made lower than the angels. What a a marvellous thing that is. You see, without the incarnation, what could he not do? What could he not do? You say, well, there's nothing that the Lord couldn't do. Yes, there is. He couldn't die. He couldn't die. He had to become a man to die. You see, it says he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Listen, marvel of marvels that the Son of God left the heights of unspeakable glory and came all the way down here to die. And in order to die, he had to be born as a man and live as a man and to be here lower than the angels so that he could die. One writer said to realise that the creator of angels the head of angels, the Lord of hosts, the one who's worshipped by angels, should for our sakes, for a little time, become lower than the angels, is the definition of humility. The second statement, crowned with glory and honour, now some, to be fair, some see that as the exaltation and crowning of uh, Christ in glory with honour as a consequence of his death. I think in context, that's not really the flow of thought here. It is true, but I'm not sure it's the flow of thought. You see, because that expression, crowned with glory and honour, was also true of Adam. In fact, it was true of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So you can be crowned with glory and honour here upon earth, because Adam was. It's a description of the dignity of manhood. It's a description of the honour and of the authority of man. And so it says here, he's crowned with glory and honour. Why? Why does it say that? That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Oh, hold on. This is the substitutionary work of Christ here. So if a man is going to die in my place, what kind of man will that need to be? It is a man in the full dignity and glory of perfect, unsullied manhood that Adam lost in the garden. That is why Christ, as the perfect man, the man who was unsullied by sin, was the only man who could lay down his life for others. No one else could do it. And in this context, that's what he's emphasizing, the perfection of the manhood of Christ and the purpose of him in his incarnation is that he would restore man to a glory that was lost in that garden. So that the crowning is not a consequence of his death, but a necessary precursor to that death. He could not representatively fully experience death for mankind if he wasn't a perfect man. But he wasn't like other men. Because as we have lost that glory and honour, he did not. If you've got what the Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews, Jim Flanagan's the author of it, and it's very good. And Jim Flanagan, um, in his commentary, he writes quite devotionally in that commentary, and it is worth reading as a commentary on this book. And he goes down this line. You tell I was reading that. He goes down this line and he has a lovely section that speaks about Christ crowned with glory and honour in the perfection of his manhood here upon earth. 
true biblical masculinity. And you see the dominion that he had when he chose to exercise it over men, over demons, over animals, over the elements. The whole of creation was subject to him. He was crowned with glory and honour. That's why he could ride into Jerusalem in an unbroken beast. That's why he could speak to the storm and it would be stilled. That's why he could raise the dead. That's why demons would be cast out at his word. Because when he exercised his authority, it was compelling. We see Jesus. Yes, he became a man to die. Yes, he became a man in all the glory of perfect manhood to taste death for others. I would never have written that expression. To taste death. I might have said to die or to experience death or to suffer death. It's as if the full bitterness would be experienced by Christ of death. And when you look at how he died, he tasted death in all its bitterness, in all its savagery, in all its power. It wasn't a quick death. It wasn't a painless death. He tasted death for every man. He experienced it in all its fullness. You know, when you come to the end of verse number nine, you see that he's spoken about the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus. The wonder that there was a man here who was able and willing to die for us. But it begged a question, perhaps not to our minds, but certainly to those who were reading this. It went against all that they had believed and were taught about the one who would come to save them, the Messiah. They'd never heard of a suffering Messiah. Remember the main point, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Remember the point, verse 5. Don't lose the, don't lose the point. There is a world to come. Angels are not going to have dominion over that. Jesus will have dominion. God's purpose was that man would have dominion over his creation. God's purpose will be fulfilled in that perfect man. But in order for that man to reign, he first had to suffer. You say, well, why? Interrogate the verses. Why? And when you ask these questions, you find the flow of thought is released. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to be incarnate? Why did it take a perfect man to taste death for other men? Well, in verse number 10, he begins, and this is the rest of the the chapter, which I'm not going to deal with, but I'll just introduce it. From verse 10 down to verse number 18 is is an answer to that question, why? Why was that necessary? Look at the first expression in verse 10. For it became him. What does that mean? It means this. It was right. It was fit. It was appropriate. 
It was in keeping with the character of God that Christ would come. It's not a logical necessity. That's not what the expression means. You get that in verse number one of chapter two. Therefore, we ought. That's a logical necessity. That's that's a different expression here from verse 10. For it became him. It's not an obligation growing out of circumstances. Well, do you know, you get that in verse number 17 with the word behoved. That's not the expression here. The expression is just this. That God sending Jesus was entirely in keeping with the character of God. Now see that little expression. That little expression is worthy of meditation and thought. That all God's redemptive purposes, all God's acts of salvation were entirely in keeping with his character. Whose character? Well... For it became him, who is the him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. It's the creator. It's the creator. We've been speaking about a world that's going. We've been speaking about a world that's coming. We've been speaking about the first man created and dominion given. We've been speaking about another man, Jesus and the dominion that he will exercise in a coming day. And over the whole thing, all of it is in, is in keeping. All of it is fitting because it displays and is in keeping with the character of the creator of all things. The one for whom all things, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, the object and the agent of the whole of creation. And then he says this, in bringing many sons unto glory. You know, this is the great purpose of God in salvation, to bring many sons to glory. Not everyone, but many. And in order to do so, It was entirely in keeping with the character of God that the captain of our salvation, their salvation, according to the writer, would be made perfect through sufferings. I'm going to pick that up next time. In what way was Jesus made perfect through his sufferings? Think about that. And secondly, why was that necessary? Thirdly, why is that in keeping with the character of God? How does, the, how does the chapter flow on from here? So let's just summarise where we got to. We discovered here that he's finishing up this argument, this treatise, if you like, the superiority of, of the Lord Jesus over angels, no matter what angel it is. And we've seen that he is superior because he is divine. He is superior because he is unique. And when you come to here, he is superior because of his ultimate dominion. And angels don't have that. And then we have seen how that, when you look around yourself, you see, well, man doesn't have dominion, but there's coming a day in that world to come where he again will have dominion and where Christ will reign. That's entirely consistent with the character of God. That in order to bring that about, the Lord Jesus Christ had to be sent, there had to be a saviour, sin had to be dealt with. 
The problem had to be removed. You see, the reason that there is a world to come is because of Calvary. God could have it no other way. He cannot act inconsistently with his character. He cannot. And if he wanted to bring many sons to glory, he would have to send his son, who would be made perfect through suffering, ultimately, to bring about that purpose of bringing many sons to glory. So when you read Psalm 8 again, read it with that in mind. The dominion of man. And then remember, there's a perfect man who one day will have that full dominion. Let's just pray.